It is excellent for us to be here on this first of the week. We are here, not that it is good, just because we enjoy it, just because it is something we uh, personally look forward to and feel good about. It's good because the Lord has decided that we ought to be here, and He has commanded that we should be here for one another. Thank you, Grady. He has commanded that we should be here for one another, and so we do feel encouragement, and we do see it as a good thing, because God has said, absolutely, it is a good thing. And so I am encouraged by your presence. Those who are with us online, we thank you uh, for your encouragement in that way, and so encouraging to see so many who are here today. What a blessing God has provided us with to be able to be here together. And our desire is to build one another up, to stir one another up, to love and good works. And the best way, the only way, indeed, we can do that is through sharing in His Word together. So we encourage you who are at home, those of you who are here, open up your Bible with us. We will be looking at this text extensively here in 2 Corinthians chapter 13. That will be our main point of focus. And as we look at these verses, we need to think about the man who wrote them. The Apostle Paul, who in all of antiquity was perhaps the most traveled man, we see much of his travels in uh, the book of Acts, and we see from the letters that he's written, the places that he's been, even places he was intending to go that we're not sure if he actually made it there or not. But what that means is that the Apostle Paul, as a brother and a fellow traveler to many other Christians, got really good at goodbyes. And while this part of 2 Corinthians 13, the second uh, letter that he, that he wrote, the second one that we have that Paul wrote to the, to the Corinthians, uh, the last words that he sends are kind of this goodbye. They're this farewell as he speaks here. And while this is not exactly a, a goodbye sermon, uh, certainly those of you who realize we just moved here, no, I'm not saying goodbye. We'll be taking a trip later today, but we plan to come back from that and we'll cover your prayers as we're traveling. This is not a goodbye in the normal sense, this lesson, but it is a farewell lesson. And I like to talk about the meaning of that some. We often use words without thinking about what those words mean. And farewell, while we typically mean see you later by that, it actually means something. It means do well, farewell. And that's what Paul is saying here and what may be some of the last words he'll have a chance to share with this group of Christians. And so he says, finally, brethren, 2 Corinthians 13, 11, farewell, become complete, be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. And that may be a bit strange depending on what version you're reading from. I'm reading from the New King James. Some of you may see Paul saying, finally, brethren, rejoice, become complete, be of good comfort. That's not a typo. That's not a mistake. The translators were not being capricious in that. The word that is used here is a word that means both farewell and rejoice. And I believe we can see some deep meaning behind that choice of wording here. You don't have to be a Greek scholar to understand the New Testament well. I would suggest to you as you get deeper into your studies, learning the original meaning of some of these words can be very valuable. And this is one of those words that has a really interesting meaning. I am no Greek scholar, so if this hurts your ears when I say chairo, which is how this is supposed to be pronounced, the word itself means to joy, to rejoice, to be glad. When people would meet one another in, in use of this Greek word, they would say, hail, but it means I'm rejoicing to see you. I'm glad to see you. What a, what a great thing. As I said, when we're together, what an encouraging thing to see one another. And so in your, in your writing of letters, you might use this word as a greetings. May, may joy be with you as it is with me and being able to communicate with you. Or at parting, the underlying thought is 
Let's rejoice together that perhaps we'll see one another again. Let's rejoice in our own lives knowing that we've grown from being together. There's always the thought of joy or cheer that comes with the use of this word. And so as Paul is telling the Corinthians to fare well, or in some translations to rejoice, he's telling them the same thing. And what I want us to, to kind of focus on as we go through this lesson is that Paul in this verse actually explains to them how to fare well so that they may rejoice. That's what this explanation that he gives them is and some of his final words to this church that had struggled so much and with whom he had lived for so long. He lived among them for nearly three years. He knew them very well. He desired the best for them. And I want to suggest to you that as this is not a goodbye lesson, it's a farewell lesson, my desire for you is that you fare well. And my desire as an evangelist working with you is that I can help you to fare well and you can help me to fare well in our service to God. But the best way we can do that is to see what did the Holy Spirit and Paul inspire Paul to write so that the church at Corinth could fare well. And the first thing he, he says to them is that they ought to become complete. Again, this is a word uh, that is used in a lot of places by Paul. It's, uh, he uses the root of this word in 2 Timothy 3.17 that we just sang about, actually. 2 Timothy 3.17, as he's encouraging Timothy about where he can become complete, where the man of God becomes complete, it's through the word of God. He says in verse 16, all scripture, this is 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete. There's one form of this word that we're using here, this uh, become complete in 2 Corinthians 13. And then he says, thoroughly equipped, which is another form of that same word. Become complete and perfectly equipped for every good work. How is that done? It's through the word. It's through the word that God has, has given them. In Matthew in Matthew chapter 4, in verse 21, we see this word used in a different uh, context, but it helps us to understand what this word means. When he says, become complete. In Matthew chapter 4, when Jesus is calling out to some of the men who will later become his apostles, he has called out to Peter and Andrew, who were working in the boats, and then he comes across James and John. And in Matthew 4, 21, he saw two other brothers, James, uh, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. This word become complete is literally the word mending here. And so you can imagine these fishermen, as they've come back from this hall, their nets have been damaged by some of these fish struggling to get out, and they've got holes in their nets. So they have to fix the holes. They've got to make the net complete again so that it can do its service. I think that's a great visual for us when we think about working together as a congregation. The life that we live, the world that we live in, as we struggle and strive to serve God faithfully, it's gonna damage us. We're gonna have scars, battle scars. We're gonna have weak places. And as we work together, as James and John were working together, we can mend those places in our, in our netting, if you will. We can fix those weak spots so that we'll be able to become complete. It's something that's done together. It's something that's done through the, the use of God's word. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, when Paul first began writing to this church, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he realized there was an issue. He had heard from the household of Chloe and perhaps from some others that there were issues of division among the church at Corinth. And so he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 10, I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
that you all speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. It's using that same phrase that we see here in 2 Corinthians chapter 13. Perfectly joined together. The ESV has united. The New American Standard says that you be made complete. And so what we see is that really Paul began his writings to Corinth speaking of this need for unity, of this need for working together to make themselves perfect or mature or complete. And then his last words in 2 Corinthians 13, he's reminding them of this need. It's not something that you do just once when you say, I want to become a part of this group. I want to join and so that we'll be a perfectly united group. And so I've done that, <laughs> checked off my list as we talked about maybe in our class today. It's not something that's just done once and then you get to, to put that away. It's a process that we work through. This unity is something we're going to strive for. In fact, in Hebrews 10, the words used uh, in Hebrews 10 and 11, a little bit differently, but it shows us a little bit of this idea that I'm talking about now. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5 is a quote. And it's talking about Jesus coming into the world. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, Hebrews 10, 5, but a body you have prepared for me. God made a body for Jesus. It wasn't just kind of poof, it existed. The idea here is there's a body that had been prepared specifically for Jesus' service. And again, in Hebrews 11, verse 3, by faith we understand that the worlds were framed, is the word here that's, that's being translated by this Greek word, being framed by the word of God. In the New American Standard, it says the worlds were prepared by the word of God. And what I want to get to as we're looking at all this is that the idea behind this, this phrase, become complete, and you'll see that even in the way this verbiage is used here, is the idea of a process. There is preparation toward a goal. James and John were mending the net, not just so they could hang it up on the wall and have this beautiful entire whole net up there. They had work to do with that net. They were fixing it so they could then go out and use it properly. And so there's a process that we're working toward as we're mending ourselves individually by the study of his word and then mending ourselves and knitting ourselves together to work as a family, to work as a body through the use of his word. And there's an end goal. That end goal, obviously, for all of us is heaven and then catching as many fish in that net as we can to go along with us. There is a goal that we're preparing ourselves toward. So Paul tells the Corinthians, if they want to fare well, or again, if they want to rejoice, then there's work to be done in mending themselves to one another and mending what is lacking so they can be perfectly joined toward the goal of serving God properly. But he doesn't stop there. Going back to 2 Corinthians 13, verse 11, then he tells them, be of good comfort. I've kind of struggled with that translation because it almost sounds like feel good. <laughs> be comforted. In fact, the New American Standard says be comforted. But that's not really what this phrase means. The idea is more be the type who are good at comforting. Be those who comfort well is really a probably better translation or an idea here. The word comfort here is parakaleo, and you may recognize the paraclete, if you've heard of that word used before, from John 14, 16, our Pentecostal friends talk a lot about the paraclete. It's the helper, the Holy Spirit. The old King James says, the comforter, who Jesus said, I will send to you in my name, and he will be with you and will reveal all things to you. It's the Holy Spirit. And so that word is, is familiar in the New Testament language, especially in the book of John. It's the paraclete or parakaleo. To be alongside of is literally, you may see the word parallel, in there are two lines that run alongside one another or, or parable, two stories that run alongside one another. And so the idea here is that we're 
calling each other up to, each, up to one another. We're calling each other to our side so we can comfort or encourage, as the New uh, International Version says. That's, that's a better idea here. We become encouragers of one another as we're mending our nets. Again, there's a process that involves more than one person working together. Can you imagine James and John working on that net and James is frustrated because he just can't get the knot to tie. He can't get these two pieces that are frayed. And John says, well, here, I'll work on that section. You work over here. And they begin to work together in a way that is productive for both of them. They encourage each other, remembering that there is an end goal as they do it. In Romans chapter 12 and in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul uses this word in the New King James language. He says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, I strongly urge you, I implore you, depending on the translation you use. That's the idea. So Paul, in both of those texts, in Romans 12 and Ephesians 4, he's imploring Christians to do what is right. And that's the idea behind this word. We want to build each other up by comforting one another in this service. We want to urge each other to do what is right, to grow, to love God, and to serve. And so we're going to need one another in that. Again, as Rick was pointing out, that's part of this process of becoming a part of this body. We're saying, I need you to help me. I'm going to be battle-scarred. I'm going to get dinged up. I'm going to get discouraged. And I want you to help me stay, stay the course. I want you to help me to mend the net so that I can do the work that needs to be done. And we're also saying, and I want to help you. <laughs> I'm not just coming to see what I can get out of this. I've got something to offer because the Lord has made me who I am. And so together, if we do this, we can be really successful because God wants us to be in this service. Think about the example of Barnabas. In Acts chapter 4, verse 36, his name, Barnabas, is actually given to him by the, the apostles. His name is Joses, and they give him the name Barnabas because roughly translated it means son of encouragement. But it's interesting that in Acts 4, 36, the word that's used when they spell out the phrase son of encouragement is paraklesis. It's the same root. He becomes the paraclesis. He becomes one of the comforters. It's a word, in fact, that's used in Luke chapter 2. When Simeon sees Jesus at the temple after he's given the, the offering here, he's come as the Savior. Simeon says, I've seen the salvation of Israel. But what he says is, I've seen the comforter of Israel. And he uses this word, paraclesis, because in the Old Testament, in some of the prophecies, the Messiah was called the comforter. In fact, that's why Jesus says when he's going on to be with the Father, he tells the apostles, I will send another helper, another comforter. He uses that same word that applies to him and says, but I'll send the Spirit in my place to do what I've come to do. And he uses that word paraclesis and then paraclete when he's talking about the, uh, the Spirit in, uh, in particular and the work he'll do. In Acts chapter 11, then, we get a look at exactly what Barnabas does. In Acts 4, he was called the son of encouragement because of his uh, willingness to, to even sell off some of his lands to give the proceeds into the hands of the apostles that could then help people who were in need. In Acts 11, he's called on to encourage this brand new church that's these Jews and Gentiles now worshiping together in Antioch in Acts chapter 11. And he's the one that the, the apostles kind of call on and send him up to Antioch to help out. And look what he does when he gets there. Acts chapter 11 Verses 22 through 24. News of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. When he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. 
Think about the opportunity that Barnabas had here. He's been sent on from Jerusalem, where the, all the apostles are, where the word of the Lord had first sounded forth. He's been sent out here to Antioch, where there are Jews and Gentiles now together. Now we find out in the text, he is a, a Levite from the region of Cyprus, but he is now residing in Jerusalem, and he's been sent up here to Antioch. So he is among the Hellenistic Jews, is where he grew up. He knows the Hellenistic, the Greek culture. He's a perfect man to kind of bridge the gap between Jew and Gentile. And he's the one they send up there then to do this work. And the work he does is amazing. He encourages them with purpose of heart to continue with the Lord. <laughs> he doesn't talk about the church back in Jerusalem. He doesn't say, you've got to do things the way they're doing it back there. He talks about the Lord. And the, the end result of that in verse 24, because he was a good man full of the Holy Spirit and faith, a great many people were added to the Lord. <laughs> His focus was the Lord. The people then learned to focus on the Lord, and a great many people were added to the Lord. That's the work that an encourager does. He helps others to focus on the Lord. As we're mending these nets, we're focusing on the Lord and on His Word. And that's what's mending us together, and that's what's giving us the strength and the encouragement to continue in the fight. After all, it's His fight. In Israel, when they would go into battle, they needed to remember... The battle belongs to the Lord. Sometimes we sing a song to remind us of that. That's how they knew they were going to be victorious. Not because they were such great warriors. Many of them had beaten their plowshares into swords. They weren't really trained as army men, but they were trained to trust in God and serve God. And because of that, they were victorious even when their numbers were very, very small because of their faith in God. That's where we need to be training and building one another up as we mend our nets together in the Lord. But going back to 2 Corinthians 13 and verse 11, Paul says there's something else that they must do. As they are becoming complete and as they are becoming the kind that comfort and exhort one another, they need to be of one mind. In Philippians chapter 2, uh, in verse 2 and verse 6, again in chapter 4, we see this same idea of this one mindedness. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, he says. Be united entirely in the way you think. At least eight times all through Philippians, he uses this word over and over and over again as he's trying to unite that church and encourage and build up that church. It's the, it's the, it's the epistle of joy because they're united. And then he tells uh, one brother to help Evodia and Syntyche to get through the struggles they have and become entirely united in the Lord. So he uses this phrase over and over again in the book of Philippians. And the idea is to be intently focused on the same thing. Sometimes that's hard. We've all got different lives. We've all come from different places. We've all got different ideas in mind for what we're going to do during this life. So we can be pulled in all these different directions. I dare say that most of us, if it were not for Christ, probably wouldn't even know each other. We wouldn't have anything in common besides the Lord at first to call us together. And yet, here we are. And we love each other as family. We desire that each other should grow and make it to heaven as family, and we begin to have so much in common that we look forward to seeing each other, even outside of the, these meetings on the first of the week, because it's a blessing to spend time together with others who are focused intently on the same thing that we are, and we need that. In John chapter 17, we see very clearly what Jesus had prayed that we would be focused intently upon. John 17, beginning at verse 17. Jesus, we have his prayer in the garden where he asked the Father, if it's possible, 
may this cup pass from me. That's the one recorded in three of the Gospels. But this is really the prayer in the garden. This is what Jesus was focused on that allowed him then to say, your will be done and not mine. Because he saw this as what was laid before him, that Hebrews 12 says it was a joy that was laid before him. John 17, beginning verse 17. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified by the truth. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Now is the point. That they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. You see what Jesus was desiring here? His word, as he sent it out among them, and then as they preached it to others, would unite people, would bring people together. Seems to me that people are so disunited. When you start to talk about Christ, you get all these ideas that seem, seem opposites one to another. And the problem is, people aren't uniting in his word. Most of the time, what divides people that would call themselves Christians is not what's in God's word. It's what they've added or what they've taken out of it that they think is important. If we would just do what Jesus said, we would be united in his word. We'd be able to focus on the same thing. He's revealed to us what we need to be focused on. And so often, we're just focused on everything else but this. God has given us what he wants us to focus on. And he wants to be focused intently on that. And so we can't allow ourselves to become distracted by the world. That's what Satan wants. Well, he just throws so many things at us, and one of them's going to stick. <laughs> and then that'll be our distraction. Our personal interests sometimes drive us so much more than our interests in what the Lord has prepared for us. I'm not saying we can't have personal interests. Some of those are really good. Paul was a tent maker, apparently good enough at it to make a living at it. But we can't be distracted by our personal interests and by the things of the world. We need to be focused and striving toward the same goal. And that goal needs to be what the Lord has determined in his purposes. If you will, turn with me to Romans chapter 12 and verse 16. Romans 12, verse 16, Paul says as much in this one verse. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. And his point here is, your focus needs to be elsewhere than on these things of the world that, that call to us. They do appeal to us in some way. But what we need to be doing is we need to be of the same mind toward one another and have our minds set on the high things of God, not on the high things of this world. And that's really his point there. And so as we do that, we'll become more and more united. What is our real focus, both when we're here and when we're not here? And if it becomes the same thing, we'll be thinking like each other and we'll be desiring to be with one another. And then finally, he says in 2 Corinthians 13, verse 11, live in peace. Well, that sounds sort of easy on the surface. What is he really saying? The word here is irenaeo. It's the, the Greek word. I'm, again, I'm no Greek scholar. If that hurts your ears, I'm sorry. But think of like, Irenaeus, one of the church fathers, his name meant peacemaker. Yeah, that's where he gets his name. The name Irene today means peaceful. Uh, so we can see this, this Greek root even in people's names. And the idea is not just of someone who is peaceful, but of someone who cultivates harmony, someone who seeks for those things that are peace. Not just, I kind of feel like everything's okay. Let's, let's kind of go along to get along. That's not the idea here. The idea is of preparing beforehand, preparing the way for peace to rule the day. And that doesn't mean then a unity and diversity. Again, that means unified in what God has said. And we've got to prepare our own hearts for that. 
we see that there's a, a double context for this. In Romans 12, verse 18, Paul speaks about being at peace with the world. In verse 16, he was really talking about uh, Christians being together. But in verse 18, if it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. There are concessions I'm going to have to make as I live out in the world. I shouldn't always be just trying to get my way. Certainly, if sin is involved, I'm not going to make concessions for sin. But I ought to be the kind of person that has prepared the way for peace. Because you know what's going to happen when the world does finally go to chaos? People are going to recognize that there's a hope within you, Peter says. That there's a peace within you. And they're going to come to you and say, how do you do it? <laughs> you know, the world is falling apart and you're so even keeled. You're always at peace. And you're living at peace with other men. They're going to come seeking you. Blessed are the peacemakers, <laughs> Jesus said. They're going to look for people like that. Uh, Romans 14, verse 19. We'll start there since we're already in Romans. Romans 14, verse 19, though, does speak about our need to seek and prepare for peace with one another. Let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which one may edify another. And the context is in things where we have kind of great differences of opinion, cultural differences perhaps, or differences because of the way we were just brought up. This is something that I hold as very dear to me. I know it means nothing to you, but it's offensive to me that you handle things the way you do. Let's prepare for peace, and let's be willing to make concessions for our brethren and things of that nature. And we'll talk more about that as we go through the study of the book of Romans. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 13, though, Paul obviously is paving the way and preparing the way for peace among brethren. And so, again, he mentions the need for specifically among brethren. Uh, Esteem those who are serving very highly in love for their work's sake, and be at peace among yourselves. So often we're the ones who destroy each other. So often we can't get along because we want things our way. Again, if we're of one mind, if we want things the Lord's way, and not just convincing ourselves that our way is the Lord's way, but I mean really want things the Lord's way, we're going to make concessions for that to happen. And we're going to learn to work together to make that happen. In the world and in the church, we need to be those who cultivate harmony and peace around us. It's interesting how, again, Jesus, with this focus on the word, look back at John chapter 14. We're going to look at several verses here. He's talking about the comforter or the, the helper coming. And look at the context of peace in every one of these. John 14, verse 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. <laughs> there are going to be difficulties, but you can have peace. Don't be troubled by the difficulties in the world. Those are things of the world. The world just is lying in brokenness. In John 16, verse 33. These things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Jesus has been talking about his impending death and resurrection. And what that means for them. And these are frightening things for them to be hearing. He says, but don't be troubled by those things. Well, the world's going to do these kind of things. They're going to put to death innocent and good people. Maybe even some of you. I've told you beforehand so you won't be shaken. Live in peace because my, uh, my service and your faith in my service have overcome the world because I have overcome the world, Jesus said. But my favorite use is perhaps in John chapter 20. John chapter 20, verses 19 and 22. Here is Jesus coming among them. They are afraid of the Jews. They've already, uh, the Jews have already killed Jesus. He's 
now resurrected, and he comes in among the, the Jews here, among the, the apostles. Verse 19, the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. How calming would that have been finally when the Lord comes? As he said he would. But he comes in among you. He's come through the locked doors. And he comes in and says, peace be with you. But what's interesting in this context is it doesn't end there. Look at verse uh, 21 again. He says, peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. But look at verse 22. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. This is a very loaded verse. <laughs> Literally, he inspired them is the idea. He has breathed now. God has breathed into them his word and his peace. He's wanting them to, to be reliant on that. But this really harkens back to the image of God breathing into man back in Genesis, in Genesis 2. He's giving them what they need for their life to be peaceful and to be able to survive as they go out into the world. Jesus is the one who sent them out. Who sent Jesus out? God did. What is their purpose? To uphold God's will, peacefully serving no matter what the world has as a reaction to it. And so peace is what Jesus essentially breathes on them as they are to cultivate harmony going out teaching his word. And so what we see as we go through all of this really is that this kind of peace that we're to live in, this, this complete and perfecting, uh, perfectedness that we need to have, this being able to comfort one another, this one-mindedness that we need, all of this is only truly possible if his word will dwell richly in us. And I love, again, how Paul sums this up in one verse. He says all the same things that we're just talking about. Colossians 3:15. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. In the context, we know better, verses 16 and 17 perhaps. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Become complete. There's a process there. Be good comforters of one another is a really a better way to think about that phrase. Be entirely united in the way you think and your focus and your thinking on God's word and live in peace. And the result, the God of love and peace will be with you. I said at the beginning, this is not a goodbye sermon, but that word goodbye in the English language actually comes from a phrase that means God be with you. <laughs> and so this is a farewell, do well, rejoice lesson. And God will be with you <laughs> if you do things according to his way and according to his will. In fact, as we commit to doing things his way, he's the one who makes it all possible. We started talking about how in Philippians, Paul uses this word of the one-mindedness over and over again. I want you to look at what his instruction is. In Philippians 1 and then in part in Philippians 2, and we'll kind of leave, finish out with this. But this is the concept behind faring well. Philippians 1 verse 6, Be confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. It's God's desire that we do well, and he's the one who will give us the power and the strength to carry through. It wasn't the soldiers at Jericho that tore down those walls. It was God. They just did what he said, and he gave them the power and the strength through his word. Colossians, uh, Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, 
not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. The more we focus on his word, the more we mend together the nets in his service, the more we become of one mind, the more his will is in us and his power is in us to do. He's the one who wills and he's the one who gives us the strength to do as we then live in peace with one another. So brethren, farewell. My desire for you is that you farewell that you may rejoice. And my question to you, and the question that should arise in our minds as we look at a text like this, am I faring well? Am I doing these things? And there's much more. But these are very basic and straightforward things that Paul lays out for this church that had struggled so deeply. Am I doing these things? Am I faring well that God may make me to rejoice? I want to help you do that. And I need your help as I'm struggling to do these things as well. Will you allow us to help you fare well? If you are a Christian, you've been struggling with doing well. That's what we're here for. We're here to comfort you as we need your comfort and our service as well. We're here to mend the nets together with you. We can look together at this one mind that we ought to have, and we can strengthen ourselves in that, and we can live in peace with God and with men. If we will but do his will, we want to help you do that. If you're struggling, make your need known to us. If as a non-Christian, you desire to fare well, and God can make you rejoice, if you're willing to confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, to come forward and have your sins washed away in baptism as you repent of those, you can begin faring well this very day. We'd love to help you do that. We'd all rejoice together with you if you would do that. Whatever your need is, please make it known to us. We're going to stand and sing a song to encourage your decision.